This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 47 of Compliance into the Weeds, a podcast with myself and Matt Kelly, where we take a deep dive into a compliance-related topic each week. This week, we're going to take a look at Jay Clayton's recent speech and the anti-Dodd-Frank and Sarbanes-Oxley groundswell that's starting to brew. Matt thinks that the Republican-dominated Congress will uh, try to repeal certain protections laid out in Sarbanes-Oxley. I tend to take the other position on it, but we have a very interesting discussion on it. This week's episode is sponsored by the ARC Group Publishing Company. The ARC Group published my most recent book, 2016, The Year in Corporate FCPA Enforcement, Cardinal and Provident. You can check out the book and more at the ARC Group at their site, ARK-group, that's arcgroup.com. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance. This is the podcast where we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. So, Matt, welcome. Hello, Tom. It's always good to be back here. So, Matt, you have been thinking a lot about Jay Clayton lately. And I have. Thinking about, as we would say in Texas, there's no G in thinking, uh, <laughs> thinking about how he might impact uh, Dodd-Frank, perhaps even Sox, mm-hmm. but certainly the investor market, and then wrapping all that around compliance. So why don't you uh, tell us what you've been thinking about? Sure. So for a while now, I think me and most of the compliance community, we've been waiting for signs from Jay Clayton, chairman of the SEC. Uh, I think since about May is when he took over the job, uh, looking for signs from him about what his priorities as SEC chairman will be. And now we have them because uh, earlier in July, he gave his first speech as chairman of the SEC. And It's worth reading. Uh, It's up on the SEC's website. And Clayton talked a lot about, I think he outlined seven or eight different principles that he has for what he wants the commission to do. But compliance officers in particular would probably want to zero in on his principle number seven, which is that the costs of compliance now really no longer reflect the implementation systems that companies need to get compliance done. And he gave the example of CEO certifications. He didn't specifically say that was for Sarbanes-Oxley 404, which are the uh, assertions that companies have to make about their internal control over financial reporting and the audits that they have to get uh, for ICFR. But, okay, so under SOX, CFOs and CEOs need to certify that to the best of their knowledge and ability, these numbers are accurate. But um, really, the costs of that are that those top executives force sub-certifications on divisional people who force sub-sub-certifications on department heads and so on and so forth down the line. Clayton's big point being that the costs of compliance are you know, considerably larger than they would look like when you see, oh yeah, certification, how hard can that be to get? Uh, And he wanted to really try to evaluate more closely, are these costs 
in step with the benefits that these regulations provide. Um, so that, I think, was the key takeaway is that he's kicked off that football, and now this is probably the game that we're going to be playing for months and months to come. Um, Congress is looking at Sarbanes-Oxley compliance again. He, Clayton's fellow Republican commissioner, Michael Piwawar, he talks about this often. So this discussion is now in play, and here we are. So I guess um, none of this really surprises me, Matt. And uh, I think the the only question I had was, when would we start the discussion? So it, do you see it differently from that? Or is this just going to be a rubber stamp through Congress uh, and on a roller coaster? Well, that's a good question. Um, politically speaking, is it going to be a rubber stamp through Congress? No. Would it be a rubber stamp through the House of Representatives? Yes. However, then the stamp stops at the U.S. Senate, which typically doesn't really pay much attention to what the House does, especially around financial reform legislation. The Senate will pursue its own, and it is not clear where the Senate might think about these things. I mean, the Senate is under Republican control. We can assume there'll be some healthy skepticism about do we really need all these SOX regulations. Um, but all of that aside from what Congress could do, the SEC itself could take some administratively, could take some very different views compared to what we've seen before, um, that the Division of Corporation Finance could go much easier on what it requires for corporate submissions in SEC filings and talking about um, controls and procedures. Jay Clayton could replace the head of the public company accounting oversight board. Now, that's the one that enforces standards on the audit firms who then come and show up at your door and demand all sorts of evidence for audits of internal control. So they could do this backdoor approach where they reshuffle the PCAOB and they reshuffle the standards. And then, therefore, the firms are more tempted to go a bit easier on these SOX audits. Um, As much as I love the audit firms, I don't think they care all that much about ICFR. They like the line of business it brings them. But what they really want is... Uh, more flexibility to offer different services to their clients, which is far more lucrative than just the audit work. So there are all sorts of political trade-offs here. But my fear is just that we might get carried away at looking at the costs of compliance, which are not small, and in many times they are larger than we thought at the beginning, but are we fully capturing the benefits of compliance And I don't even mean what's the return on an ethical culture and things like that. You know, nuts and bolts, accounting compliance. How does that translate into benefits for the company? And do we understand that? And do we know how to weigh those benefits against what these costs are? And I'm not necessarily sure a lot of the uh, Clayton types and Republican types out there want to pay much attention to the benefits that come along with good compliance. So do you view this as an extension or something different from what I think we both initially thought the uh, reorientation of the SEC would be towards access to capital. Do you see it beyond that? Uh, Yes, that's a very good way to phrase it. It goes beyond that. Easier access to capital, more IPOs. That is something that Jay Clayton 
and supporters in Congress and Commissioner Piwawar, his fellow Republican, and many others. That's what they want. Above all, is they want to figure out how do we revive the IPO market in this country. Um, but then they also want to go a lot easier, and they will probably say, why don't we just extend some of this um, compliance rollback to existing companies that are already public, and then Shangri-La will follow. Now, that's not actually what is going to follow, and the IPO problems are generally not caused by regulatory costs. Though regulatory costs are a concern that pre-IPO companies have, but this is not why we are losing IPOs. Uh, so I kind of think that uh, you know Clayton and his supporters are just interested in getting this regulatory rollback done. And the IPO is a nice way to describe what the problem is. It's not accurate, but it's a good headline sell that we need more IPOs in this country. I think if we did all of this, it would see marginal increase in IPOs, but it's really anybody who thinks that we're going to go back to the 1990s with the IPOs happening like they're going out of style, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, nor should it, because I was there in the 1990s covering these IPOs, which were as loosey-goosey as you can imagine. But um, this is the discussion that I think is likely to come over a period of months, probably into next year as well. We'll see where these go. But this is on the mind. Uh, as you said, the, the, the moment is here. They're, we're going to start talking about it. So you, you uh, I think, uh, accurately uh, articulated um, that the IPO market will not significantly change. Uh, I perhaps see that um, because of the dramatic rise, certainly since the 90s, of private equity money and the lack of need for companies to raise capital on the public markets, and perhaps even the, the lack of cachet of going public, uh, if, if that's a, a thing as well. Um do you see um, the lack of IPOs for from a different perspective or for a different reason? Well, um, I, no, I think that the abundance of private equity means that companies are indeed, um, you know, they don't have as much need to go public. Um, you don't have as much need to go public because this is a much broader macroeconomic phenomena. You and I can talk about another day, but companies need less money to get started and to expand. Uh, these ideas that, you know, we're going to have another Ford Motor Company or another railroad company that needs staggering amounts of money to expand globally, that's not the way the world works anymore. You subcontract out everything you need when you need it only to the amount that you need it. And that means you need less capital, period. So why would you want to go off and raise $100 million to have an IPO. It's not like you need $100 million to start a company anymore. Now, that might have been true many years ago, but not today. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of pressures like that. But the biggest obstacle to the IPO market is just, you know, why would you want to go public? You are going to lose control of your company. That is what CFOs fear first and foremost. Um, so if you can stay private and therefore work with private equity people who are much more invested in having the company grow stably and profitably, and then they sell you off to someone else. But, you know, they keep control as opposed to kicking this off into hedge fund activists who are going to start waging a, some sort of campaign on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Nobody wants that if you're a CFO or a CEO. Um, so there's a lot of big issues like that. The other counterintuitive reason there are fewer IPOs is because in 2012, 
when we passed the Jobs Act to repeal some Sarbanes-Oxley governance reforms. One thing it did was it made crowdfunding easier. It made access to capital um, in these sort of private market markets a bit easier. So again, if there's more money that you can flow into the company coffers without an IPO, which is what the Jobs Act did, the result is going to be there's still not as many IPOs. Um, so it's all sorts of stuff like that. But what I would like to talk about is um, I think one thing people forget with Sarbanes-Oxley, why did we pass this 15 years ago? We passed it specifically to reduce the likelihood of financial statements, which were happening in large numbers and in large amounts uh, back in the early 2000s, and to instill some sort of accountability for corporate governance and oversight at the board and with the CEO and the CFO, not just the general counsel and the corporate secretary say everything in the SEC filing looks good this quarter. Okay, we sign it, we send it, there we go, we're done. We needed much more accountability, and that's what SOX created, to offset the likelihood of financial restatements, which is what has happened. So anytime people look at the costs of compliance, how much does it spend cost us to do all of this? For example, in 2016, the average financial restatement that did happen, and they're happening much less often these days, but when they did happen in 2016, uh, this is according to audit analytics, the average restatement was for a little bit less than $8 million. That's how much income got wiped out by a financial restatement. So what did that cost the company? $8 million. What did it cost you to figure out what this was, uh, you know, whatever internal investigation costs you need? What sort of market cap did you lose? Um, what other sort of cachet or credibility with customers and the public did you lose? All of that is a cost as well for being non-compliant. If that is larger than the amount you would need to stay compliant with 404, then the Obviously, you should think about maybe we should stay compliant with 404, um, especially when the costs of compliance are going down. There are many ways that you can now rent out good corporate accounting software. It's not any of this big stuff that existed 15 years ago where you had to work with a zillion spreadsheets and you had that big ERP software system that you needed to configure for 18 months you just go and you rent out what you need, which has a lot of these compliance controls baked right in. You rent it out month by month, user by user. It's a more precise way to measure your costs. Um, and over time, these costs of SOX compliance, if you measure them, I, I think the figure is like costs per dollar of revenue, which you can calculate. That has been trending downward for most companies. So we need to be thinking in these terms and not just what is this public policy goal that we want? We want more IPOs. Let's do it. Which, by the way, these policy goals will not bring back that IPO market of days gone your. Those days are gone. That train has left the station. It's not coming back. Not now, not ever. And uh, I think I would echo your sentiment that I don't, I don't believe it should come back either. No, not necessarily. And, you know, I'm since we, we get in the weeds in this podcast, I'm going to do something I, I rarely do. But I would advocate people who are thinking seriously about these issues. There is a book worth reading called The Vanishing American Corporation. It is by a business professor named Gerald Davis. It is excellent, but it does look at 
Why did we have big corporations in the United States in the 20th century, which was not always the case in other big industrial countries, but it was here? Why did they go away? Why did they bubble up in the uh, 60s and 70s as conglomerates? Why did we go through this big consolidation in the 80s and this tech bubble in the 90s? Why did it pop? And how come after the tech bubble popped, did it never really return? He answers a lot of those questions, but it gets to this point that why would you need $100 million to start a company these days? The vast majority of them, you can turnkey it by renting out contract labor, contract equipment manufacturers overseas. You can rent all the software you need. You can rent out a CFO. You can rent out compliance services. Um, all of this stuff that you can snap together and you can look at some ostensibly or supposedly very large companies like Google. Yes, Google is a huge market cap, but Google employs a tiny fraction of the industrial giants of yore, like General Motors or Standard Oil or people like that. Um, so I think we lose sight of the fact that we see some big IPOs. They, they don't necessarily translate into a lot of job growth or conquering the world. It's not the way the world works anymore. Um, and I, I don't think that's going to be part of the discussion that to come, even though I would strongly recommend that it should be. And compliance officers are going to need to be able to quantify and articulate what are the costs of compliance, what are the costs of non-compliance, what are the benefits of compliance. You, you need to start thinking in these larger terms, and that's something that I, I hope the compliance community will be able to do. It sounds like to me that we need to start uh, not not specifically giving ROI, but thinking about what are the benefits of operationalization of compliance, and as a business process, what additional efficiencies compliance brings. And I think that discussion is is beginning uh, to occur. We do have uh, the holy grail of ROI, and I think we're moving towards at least a discussion of that. Do you see things differently? Well, I think we are starting to see a discussion of it. The problem, and it's a legitimate problem, and I can see why CFOs and boards are not thrilled with compliance budgets. I get that. But the costs of compliance are tangible and direct. The benefits of compliance are often diffuse and unclear. Um, the other example I would give, because I talked about SOX compliance for a while. So here's the, the example I give about FCPA compliance. Um, if you or your company is spending money on FCPA compliance, well, you feel it. It's, you know, the CFO is signing off the check for the vendor services and the outside counsel, the investigations, all that stuff. The costs are real. The benefits only emerge when all other companies are also vigorously FCPA compliant, because that means they are not bribing their way to the front of the line and stealing business that you might otherwise get legitimately. So that's where the benefit of good FCPA compliance comes from. It only exists when we are all FCPA compliant and really embracing it. It's a difficult argument to make. It's not one that I think a lot of check signers would like. However, that is the way it would work. Um, can I give you one more metaphor that I like to throw around? Yeah, and then I'm going to give you a, a different spin from me. All right. So I, I often like to say that um, compliance is a lot like uh, going to the gym over the long term. The benefits of going to the gym are unquestionable. They're proven. Everybody knows it. You're going to feel great. And your whole life is going to be much better 
because you're going to the gym. The first time you go to the gym, you do not feel great. You feel like you've been run over by a truck. And if you do not go to the gym regularly, you will always feel like you've been run over by a truck every time you go. Now, that's an easy metaphor, I think, for people to get their heads around. And it it fits especially well with SOX compliance and the fear of restatement and good quality earnings. But if you also think about FCPA compliance, if we all go to the gym over the long term, what happens for all of us, our health insurance rates go down because we're all healthier and they go down for everybody. Now, will they change over time? Yes. And is it easy to articulate that my health premiums are now only going to go up 10 bucks this year as opposed to 500 because we're all going to the gym instead of we're all smoking and uh, hanging around eating potato chips? No, it's very difficult to quantify. But nobody, I think, would dispute that that would be the general direction we'd go in if we were all obeying this law. So it's those sort of cost-benefit challenges that we're going to have to work to articulate. So I guess I would see FCPA compliance in a different light, uh, particularly coming from the energy space, which is Mm -hmm. now to really gain entrance to the club of doing business in the energy uh, industry, you have to have a compliance program. And uh, simply because of so many FCPA enforcement actions in this space, but the industry has begun to self-regulate itself. Now, this is not simply some uh, trade group pronouncing we, we will not bribe because we're good guys in the energy space. This is the Halliburton's, the Baker Hughes, the Schlumberger's of the world <clears throat> saying to the Tom Fox Energies of the world, if you want to do business with us, you have to have a compliance program, and we're going to come audit your compliance program. We're going to audit you before we sign a contract with you, and we're going to audit you on a, some sort of regular basis going forward. And if you're going to have third parties, we're going to want to see the due diligence that you've engaged in. And we want to know uh, what you're actively doing um, to promote your compliance program internally. So it's become sort of, it started out as a market differentiator, but now it's become an entry requirement to do business in the compliance space. So that's a sort of uh, self-regulation in FCPA compliance that uh, some industries are having to move to. I And I think they should. I think it's good that they do. Um, you know, I think it is probably a different manifestation of what I mentioned before that, you know, aside from FCPA compliance for your own regulatory fears, you don't want a big fine. Um, I don't think any oil company out there wants to lose business because somebody else is cheating their way to the front. And, you know, so really, if you all agree that this is the standard that we're going to impose on ourselves and on each other, and certainly having that big, bad Justice Department staring down at you, making sure that, you know, you shouldn't do this, That only helps make that conversation and that group pledge for a better conduct easier to do, easier to have. And there is always that moral imperative that bribery breeds corruption, which breeds poverty and just dismay and suffering in the world. And we don't talk about the moral dimension to it often enough, but that is what drives a lot of this, you know, because this is the right thing to do. Living in a corrupt country, and I've visited many of them, it sucks. And the more we can do to stamp it out, even for somebody else, the better. This has turned into a really fascinating philosophical discussion. We need to do this more often. 
Well, that's why we're in the weeds. <laughs> well, Matt, uh, this has been a great time, and I hope our uh, listeners enjoy this. So uh, I know you're off on a holiday, so I wish you well, and I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Thank you very much. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast to help get uh, the word out about the only compliance-related podcast that really takes a deep dive into a subject every week. Also, it would help in our rankings. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can reach Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, and I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.